0: God, we acknowledge that in the course of our week we get busy, we get stressed, things make us feel anxious, and we thank you that there's this moment in our week we can come and think about something else, and we can come and remember that you love us, and that you care and you know us. Pray this morning we would hear your voice speaking to us. Amen. Grab yourselves a seat. Last week, uh, we looked at a passage from the book of Luke and it was a story of a man who had, um, he was a farmer and one year had perfect conditions and there was this incredible harvest and he looked at all this food he had, excess food, he's like, what am I going to do with all this food? I know, I'll tear down all my barns and I'll big, build bigger ones and I'll hoard all the grain that I've got for myself. And in the story, God says to the man, you fool, tonight you're going to die, and who's going to get all your grain then? And I talked about this, how uh, more so now than back when Jesus spoke, we've built ourselves bigger and bigger houses to hold all the stuff we had. And some of you will have seen that show, um, Sort Your Life Out NZ, and the producer says that The average New Zealander has 64,000 items in their homes. And I don't know if any of you know these stats, but every 50 years our houses double in size. So if you think back to a cottage that people lived at the turn of the last century, really little. And then, you know, by the 1950s they've doubled and now they've doubled again. And why is it? Because we have to have somewhere to put all our stuff. So today I want to ponder a little bit on why we do this? Well, that's the sort of question behind some of this. Why are we hoarding all this stuff? Now I'm going to continue reading because the story goes on a little bit more with a bit of an um, encouragement from Jesus and a little bit of a warning and some you know, guidance. What should we do? So the story uh, continues. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed Are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. And if he comes in the second watch or in the third and he finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, this is a passage in two halves. The first half is this continuation from last week. Don't hoard because moths are going to destroy, Thieves break in. And then there's the second half, which is a little bit harder to understand, where Jesus is saying kind of, I'm going to come back eventually and show yourself ready. Some of you may have heard the joke, Jesus is coming quick, look busy. This is kind of a little bit uh, like this. What, and the, the challenge here is not this wondering, you know, when's Jesus coming back? What's this end of the world? What's all that about? The focus is on what are you meant to be doing? So theologian um, Jim Rice says this, the point for Jesus was not so much than not knowing when he would return, as it was the question of what we do in the meantime. In other words, our task is not to worry about tomorrow, but to be about the daily work of faithfulness. And it's interesting that they've sort of paired these two parts of the passages together because it's the reminder, what do we do in the waiting? There's this promise that one day everything will be put right, but until it is put right, what do we do? And I guess there's this warning here because what we tend to do is get anxious and start hoarding. And build ourselves bigger and bigger houses to hold all our stuff because that's what we immediately see in front of us. And Jesus is encouraging us you know, be careful, little flock. Seek the kingdom. This isn't the thing to put your time and energy into. I've been thinking about this whole thing about moths destroying. And in some passage it says, where moths and rust destroy. Now, when Paul and I went to Auckland and studied uh, for this, this role here, we noticed that Auckland has a lot more bugs than anywhere else, and this suddenly became a lot more apparent. In fact, in the newspaper over the last couple of months, there's been stories of people getting outraged at the bug infestation. This one is going on. They were in everything. This person's talking about meal moths. The woman battles countdown over pantry infestation. Countdown is denying that it's them. They're saying you already had them. They can even climb through plastic. Um, The bottom one is a a response. Tinfoil is no barrier for Indian meal moths infestations a regular occurrence, Bugman says. Um, Auckland woman's pantry inundated with larvae from a packet of brown rice. This This is a real issue for people in the top of New Zealand, this issue of moths. And it made me think when I read this passage, Here in cold Christchurch, we don't have to worry about this so much. When we moved back from Auckland, people said, oh, poor you, you're going into the cold. I'm like, oh, how little you understand. The cold kills bugs. When we went up there, it wasn't just like the crawly bugs. We just got sick from everything. Auckland has a whole new array of every kind of bug, infection bugs, crawly bugs, and in Auckland, they just throw out antibiotics like lollies. You go to the doctor, antibiotics, antibiotics, because you just get sick all the time. Well, we discovered people from Christchurch that go to Auckland get sick because it's this whole different ecosystem of weirdness. So, what we had to contend with when we were in Auckland, here it is ants. I'm pretty sure there was some sort of ants' nest somewhere on the property, and you just couldn't leave anything out ever. And I discovered that ants can crawl under the lip of a honey honey, plastic thing, under and into the honey and be, you know, floating, stuck in the top of your honey. And then the moths. One day, I opened our pantry and it was like the bat cave. Open it and just moths coming out. Now, I know now that this was the first sign and I needed to take immediate action, but I was just like, Whoa, what was that? That was weird. Anyway, this went went on for a few weeks, and then we sort of noticed in everything we ate, sort of had different texture, sort of a little bit, um, sort of web-like structures over the food, you had to wash everything. In the end, one said they came like, this is it. Out came the wheelie bin, opened it, and just started going through pretty much everything, And the pantry had to be chucked down, like, where is this coming from? Then a very top shelf, in a cereal packet, my beautiful Vogels, cafe cafe style, my treat, occasional, there they were, just the seething mass, was just disgusting. (laughs) they outwent. The carpet, also always like like that, apparently there's something called a carpet beetle, and never have I seen in Christchurch, but definitely in Auckland, cockroaches, which you just, you can't kill, be there. And what this reminded me of is in this passage where Jesus is talking, he's in a hot country. Hot country equals bugs. And so when you hear the story of a man building bigger and bigger barns, the foolishness of it becomes a lot more apparent when you realize what they would have been dealing with. Locusts, mice, rats, moths, the works, and there's probably no real way of keeping them out. So when Jesus is calling the man a fool for hoarding all his grain, he is foolish because moths are going to destroy it. It's just gonna disappear away. And so here is this passage for today. Be careful. Have this one other picture. The only thing I've discovered in Christchurch is merino, because you've got to have your merino in Christchurch. And I don't know if you've ever put your merino into, you know, the gentle wash in the washing machine. It comes out with holes in it. Apparently, that's because a moth destroys just enough of the fabric that when you wash it, it breaks it down. So there is obviously something in Christchurch, but there's, there's that story. So here we are. Jesus is speaking in Palestine. It's hot. People are hoarding. And he's telling them, don't be so foolish. This is not what abundance is for. You didn't get a good harvest so you could hoard. You have excess to share with those in need. Here is Jesus' instruction. If you have more than you need, share with those around you. I think this is really difficult. In our culture, there are whole industries designed to make us feel like we do not have what we need. That we are suffering That if only we had this item here, our lives would be better and more fulfilled. And yet here is Jesus' instruction, you know, be careful. Be careful, little flock. Don't get sucked into this way of thinking. Some of the other passages that that tell the same story talk about where moth and rust destroy And I was curious, like, what did they have? This is just sort of at the beginning of the Iron Age. And what were they using? And this is from an archeological dig site in Galilee, in Israel. And here's the sort of things that they have. You can see it's mainly um, implements for gardening. And I thought, you know, would they have had a lot of iron? You know, when Jesus sort of says, don't hoard things of iron because they're gonna rust. Why would they have been hoarding and what would have been going on there? And I sort of did a little bit of a, probably research too much around the whole, because this article was really interesting. They tried to figure out how they made iron in Israel. It was fascinating. So they found um, iron ore. So there's deposits of iron ore in Israel. So they would have been able to make implements there, but then the other thing they needed to be able to find was coal. And you need quite a lot of iron ore and coal to then successfully make iron. And so they think that this is probably the process that they use and people are trying to recreate it. First thing you do is you create an open fire here with wood and for 10 hours you stoke that fire and you burn the iron ore. And this uh, makes it, I don't actually know what it does for it. 10 hours, but I think it makes it soft enough, oops, that you can then smash it. So the next stage is you have to, maybe with this thing here, you've got it in the rock. You've got to smash all the iron ore into tiny little pieces, so quite labor intensive. And the next thing, you've got to put it in the kiln, and you all have made this kiln out of um, clay, so quite labor intensive, and you had to fire the kiln So it's got to be able to withstand heat. So already, we're talking days of effort have gone in. And then you put the iron ore in and the coal, and that has to get up to 1,300 degrees and burn for 10 to 12 hours with a bellow being pumped on it at all times. It needs a constant flow of air going in. So when they've recreated these, they actually use hair dryers and put them on stands just to blow the air in. No hair dryers back in Jesus' day. So someone is in there with a bellows, 10 to 12 hours, and that happens, then they smash the kiln to get it all out, and 35 kgs of iron ore is going to get you 7 kgs of iron. So that gives you the raw materials, and then somebody, a smithy, or maybe people learn to do it themselves, have got to, you know, produce the actual goods from it. So it's this huge labor intensive process which is going to take weeks, days if not weeks, to be able to create the iron in order to make tools. And what struck me is, when you see it like this, this is what people are giving their lives to. To do this, to start to create excess iron, you've got to really dedicate big chunks of your life to this process. And I found this other image, and I think this is probably where people start to hoard iron. This is from the Middle East, a bit of a grainy picture. But you can see here, people are making iron and beginning to hoard it. And it's interesting what, when you have a lot of stuff and you're fearful of thieves breaking in and stealing, what you start making. And you can see these here. They are sword blades. So here this economy starts to emerge where people have more than enough. And then you have to start defending what you have. And then you create enemies and fear and this possessiveness emerges. And then from that, here is a group of people devoting weeks, months, years of their life to hoarding stuff they don't need becoming fearful at who would take it. And this is what we've inherited. You know, what would happen if someone broke into our house and took our stuff? What would happen if we don't manage to buy the nicer goods that we want? What would happen if we didn't keep up with the Joneses? I read this interesting kind of twee little parable this week, but I thought it had a good point. It's a story, in the story, there's a tourist from America and he goes to a seaside village in Mexico. And while he's there, he orders the fish and he's blown away how delicious and incredible this fish is, so flavoursome. And so he asks the fisherman the next day, you know, is this your fish? And they're like, yes, it is. And they're like, it's incredible. How long do you spend fishing? And together they all say, not long. He's kind of a bit thrown. He's from America, and he's got an MBA, and he knows that there's a business opportunity, you know, here. And he says to them, well, what do you do instead of fishing? And they're like, oh, we sleep in late. We play with our children. We eat meals with our family. And in the evenings, we go around to our friends' houses, and we tell stories, and we sing together, and we laugh, and we have a good time. And the guy from America's like, this isn't good. This... Let me give you some hot tips here. What you need to do is spend longer fishing and then sell your excess fish and then you'll be able to buy another fishing boat. Then you'll be able to employ people. They can fish too. And then with that excess money, you can buy another boat and another boat. And soon you'll have a fleet of boats and you'll be getting so many fish that you won't have to go to the middleman to buy your fish You'll be able to deal directly with the factories. And then once you're really big, you could invest your profits and start building your own factory and process your own fish. And then you could start marketing this all around the world. And if you're really lucky, you could end up living in Los Angeles or even New York. And then with your excess profit, you could invest it in the stock market and you could get an incredible yield, make millions. Fishermen are listening, and they're like, why would we do this? And it's like, you know, you're going to have millions. And it's like, and why would we want millions? They're like, well, then you can retire early. And what would we do if we retired? Well, you could sleep in late. <laughs> you could play with your friends. You could eat meals with your family. You could go and hang out in the evenings. And I think this, you know, that's a little bit of a cheesy story, But here is this world that we live in, the world of the American, that tells us we have to have more. That somehow the way to happiness, to success, to true fulfillment, the way to feel how we're supposed to feel is if we can just climb this ladder. And along the way, we sacrifice. And I think we sacrifice what we're actually called into. We're called to live in community, and we're called to serve each other, and that means being served. And I think one of the sort of false idols of our culture is this fierce independence and never needing anyone to help us. That somehow life is good if we never have to ask for help. And yet this isn't the picture of community that we get in Scripture Here we're told, you know, look after each other, care for each other, love each other. And in serving each other and in being served, there's this richness that comes from that. This is the meaning of life, to be in community, to know love. I once, uh, when I started this journey, which, you know, I often fall off the wagon, I think I'm off the wagon at the moment, this journey of trying to declutter read this take on stuff, and they said, look at things around you. Everything represents a chunk of your life. If you've bought a phone that cost $1,000, how many hours of your life did you give to get that? And then if you look at your wardrobe, what's it worth? How many hours of your life did you give? And when you start stopping... When you stop thinking of things of it costs this much money, but it costs this much of my life to get things, makes you a little bit more cautious. But I think it's really tempting. You know, for us, we can go into Bunnings and buy an iron spade for fifteen dollars. And we kind of forget that this is part of our life. But I think even more than that, the thing to remember is that often It's other people's lives too. For our life to keep going as it is, we're asking them, give up your whole life so that I can have these things cheap and I can fill my house and I can build a bigger house and fill it with more spades than I could ever use, with more tools, with more implements. Jesus is warning us against this. This is not what we were created for. They were not created for this. Our society where we end up hoarding is not what we were created for. And yet it's tricky. Yesterday I went with my daughter to the warehouse to buy a birthday present for a friend of hers. That was all we went to buy. That and wrapping paper and sellotape. That is not all we came out of the warehouse with. Because, you know, it's calling. It's, it's calling to my daughter. It's called cool. all of a sudden you're like, oh yes, she does need new clothes. It's very hard in our culture to kind of go, I don't, I don't need this. What am I giving up? Who am I asking to serve me when I have these? Yet yeah, this is the reminder Jesus gives his followers. As Christian thinker Denise Anderson says this. If I put a lot of money into a car, I'm likely to keep the oil changed, tiles rotated and interiors detailed. If I put my treasure into the poor, I'm going to care that they're attended to and their voices are heard. I'm going to care about systemic inequality that keeps people in poverty. I'm going to invest my time, not only in ensuring that my neighbors have their immediate needs met, but also in dismantling those systems that keep people chronically poor. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think the biggest challenge here is truly believing that we are loved more than we could ever imagine by the source of the entire universe, by the being that brought life on earth and everywhere we see it. The creator of the universe loves us. We are enough. And we're called then to share that love for a broken and hurting and anxious world, we are enough. I often wonder what would happen if Christians were known as those really content people who are happy and full of joy and not running after stuff and this is what Jesus wants for us. this deep sense of peace and contentment and this is what he's calling us into. Not this kind of radical, horrible life where we look like freaks, but to this true sense of joy and contentment. Let's pray together. Jesus, you talked to your disciples about this not because you wanted to ruin their lives, but because as a creator of all things, you know what makes us truly happy what brings peace and contentment. And we live in a world that has lost the ability to find those things and we go looking for them in all the wrong places. Jesus, walk with us this week. Talk to us and may we get a sense of the different life you call us into. Help us to loosen the grip that these voices have on us that tell us we need more that somehow our life would be more fulfilled if we just bought one more thing. Help us to live in a space where we know that we are loved and that that's where we can find true meaning and purpose. Amen.
1: You'd like to stand. blessed are the poor in spirit <laughs> <coughs> and blessed are the poor in spirit for they